When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is The Art of Charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. The Art of Charm is where ordinary guys become extraordinary men. Welcome to The Art of Charm, I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best thought leaders, teachers, and exceptional individuals to teach you how to be a top performer in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise, packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a curriculum. We may not have all the answers, but we definitely have all the questions. Make sure to stay up to date with The Art of Charm and get some great stuff that we don't or can't share on the show by signing up for the newsletter at theartofcharm.com. If you like what you hear on the show, come hang out with us on the blog where we'll get really in-depth on some of these topics, and you can further engage with the AOC team there as well. Or if you're new to the show and you want to find out more about what we teach here at The Art of Charm, you can go to the website and we'll email you our fundamentals toolkit that covers topics like body language and nonverbal communication, dating and attraction, persuasion, business networking, public speaking, negotiation, and a whole lot more. We've got our live programs running every single week here in Los Angeles, California. In fact, we've got guys from all over the world, which shows that no matter where you are, you can make it here if you want to learn and grow and you're ready to shed some of your excuses. We're sold out a couple months in advance, so if you're even thinking about it a little bit, you should get in touch ASAP by phone or just email me, jordan at theartofcharm.com. Get some info from us now so you can plan ahead. Looking forward to meeting you here at AOC. Today we're talking with my friend Ben Kovacs. He's one of the top salespeople at Twitter. He also has two startups and a nonprofit. So we're gonna talk about managing time because obviously that's, uh, that's the limiting factor here. How to make yourself more creative as well as why some of us should take the leap for entrepreneurship, some of us shouldn't, and how to do both the quote-unquote day job and being an entrepreneur at the same time. So enjoy this one with Ben Kovacs. We're here with my friend Ben. Ben, you do a lot of stuff, but I'll ask you what I ask everybody else when they walk into studio, which is tell us what you do in one sentence. I work at Twitter, and I have three entrepreneurial passions on the side. All right, so what do you do at Twitter? Uh, I do sales. So I work with some of our largest advertisers in the country and handle their campaigns and help them pitch new ideas and all that good stuff. Okay, and what about the side businesses? Because it seems strange that you can have a Silicon Valley job that's super demanding, especially in the sales niche, and then also have side businesses. And we'll get into how you balance all that, but I think your side businesses are interesting as well. Yeah, so I have two side businesses in the cannabis accessory space. One is called Meister, M-Y-S-T-E-R, and Meister is um, a company that was built to be sort of the wine uh, for weed, if you will. So as marijuana becomes a more uh, integrated part of our culture and it's not so hippie and stoner right. um, focused anymore, Meister was really developed to bring some some class to that space. Upscale, for upscale potheads. Exactly. All right, right, got it. Yeah. yeah. And, and you have a nonprofit as well. Yeah, and I have a nonprofit that's starting called Guardian Gym or Guardian Training. And you know, the idea is that Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is really my real passion in life, something that I enjoy doing very much. But 
Uh, it's something that not everybody has access to do, especially uh, underprivileged kids. So trying to bring that to Oakland so everybody has the chance to do martial arts that wants to. What I think is interesting and what really kind of hooked me when you sent me this quote unquote pitch is that right after you told me all these things that you do, two successful startups and the nonprofit and being one of the top salespeople at Twitter, you say, I live in a state of constant retirement. How can that be true? I mean, is that sarcastic? Because when I asked you about it off, offline, it, it wasn't. I feel like that's an interesting mindset. Yeah, I mean, I think I always like to explain this with the fisherman story. And have you ever heard the fisherman story? I have, yeah. The, but go ahead and tell it anyway. I don't know if it's been told on the show. So there's an old wives' tale, I guess you would say, of the guy who's a fisherman and a, a rich guy's on vacation, and he sees a guy fishing, and he says, hey, um, what are you doing there fishing on the dock? Don't you know that you could go out and catch more fish uh, if you had a boat? And the guy says, okay, like, then what? And he says, well, then you could sell those fish and you could buy two boats. And then the guy says, okay, then what? And he says, well, then you could hire a whole crew of people and go out and catch even more fish. And then the guy says, okay, then what? And he says, well, then you could do whatever you want to be doing right now or whatever you want to be doing in your life. And he says, isn't that what I'm doing right now? Right. And so I never forgot that story. And it just made me think like, I don't want to sacrifice the things in the near term just to have this magical retirement when I'm 65 years old. I want to be able to do the things that I want to do now, even if they're slightly less lucrative or there's some way that I could you know, maximize my bank account a little more. And I love my job at Twitter. I can't imagine a better corporate environment to work in. And my side businesses are really fun. I have great partners in those businesses. And I just feel like even if I wasn't making money in these things, I'd probably still be doing the same thing. So that's why I say it feels like a state of constant retirement. And this is interesting because there's this kind of, I've been sort of ranting about this lately where I think being an entrepreneur is like this trendy thing that's gotten kind of unjustifiably popular recently. And the marketing spin on it is, don't you hate your day job and showing up and working for the man? Don't do that anymore. Do a startup and we'll show you how to do it. But you run two startups and you kept your day job. One, why? And two, what's the deal? I mean, what made you want to start a startup if you actually like your day job? Well, I actually had gotten involved with Meister before I started working at Twitter. So I was the first investor in the company. My really good friend, Davis Clayton Keough, he's the one who came to me with the idea of the stash tray, which is the all-in-one magnetic rolling tray that I, that I showed you. And um, he came to me, asked me to invest. I said yes. And I kind of had a passive role in the company at that point. And when I went to interview at Twitter, I was very honest with them. I said, look, I do this on the side. It's fun. It's a passion project. I certainly don't spend eight hours every day doing it. Um, but I think they actually really liked that I was doing something different other than only having this corporate experience. It kind yeah. of set me apart from, from other people. So it's not that I worked at Twitter and then started to pursue the stuff on the side. It was something that the wheels were already in motion. This might seem a little bit counterintuitive for a lot of people because they're thinking, wait, I have to choose between a startup and a day job, or, oh, you must not have a very demanding job. But I don't think anybody can reasonably say that you don't have a demanding job. Working in sales is hard for any company. Working in sales for a huge Silicon Valley company is obviously a more than full-time job. So I wanna get into the sort of the balance stuff as well, but I like this topic because I think a lot of people listening are working at a corporate job and they don't think, this sucks, I'm working for the man. They wanna stay there, but they might have entrepreneurial aspirations 
they might not be able to take the plunge and just quit their job even if they did want to. So I wanna learn a little bit more about how you structure your life, especially how you manage your time and relationships if you wanna get into that as well. And show people that there's not just one way to do things. Because I, again, you know, I think there's this sort of, you have to quit your job and go all in and you gotta be, you gotta, I don't know, figure out how to get your email list and then when you do that, then you gotta go on a speaking tour and you have to have a podcast. And all this other ridiculous formulaic crap that mostly is invented by people selling you products on how to do those things. Where do we begin with all this? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think those are certainly questions I get asked all the time. You know, I think that there's a huge benefit to working for a big corporation at least once in your life. I know you were a lawyer on Wall Street I was. for a while. And I think you probably wouldn't be nearly as successful and appreciative of the job that you have now. And one of the reasons I, I actually applied at Twitter and wanted to work there is because I always told myself I'm not a corporate person. I'm never going to work for a big company. I didn't go to a fancy Ivy League school. You know, I don't have this great pedigree. I don't have, you know, parents with connections or anything like that to, to help me get there. Oh, well, you're <laughs> never going to be successful. I'm sorry. Exactly. So when I got offered the job, I said, I talked to my partner actually at Meister and I said, you know, I don't even know if I should take this job. I have these entrepreneurial passions on the side. And he said, you have to take the job. I mean, you mm. got to, I mean, there's only so many companies like Twitter in yeah. the world and you got to take it. And I, what I realized is that I didn't know if I didn't want that job at first because I think I was just making excuses for myself, basically. Mm. I didn't know if I could cut it. I didn't know if I could hang with those other people. Fear of failure. Fear yeah. of failure, exactly. And I really needed to prove to myself and see at the highest level, could I do this? And, you know, I think from working at Twitter, I've sort of seen behind the scenes of what it's like to work at a company like that. I've met absolutely amazing mm. people and I wouldn't trade it in for anything. But at the same time, I realize I'm just as smart as these people. Maybe I didn't have the fancy pedigree before, but I'm, I'm certainly someone who can hang with those folks. And it's given me a tremendous amount of confidence to not only do that job or other jobs like in the future, but also pursue the other entrepreneurial endeavors. So how did you get to that point where you were able to realize okay, I am as smart as all of these other people because I think there's a lot of people out there, it goes into imposter syndrome, which is what we're talking about. We're like, you got an offer at Twitter and you went, man, I somehow slipped through the cracks, I made it this far. If I take the plunge, they'll find out I can't make it here. But if I quit now, I can always say, well, I could have worked at Twitter, had an offer, right? How did you get to the point where you went, screw it, I'm okay with that, or either okay failing if you thought that was gonna happen or to the point where you realize, wait a minute, I'm not gonna fail, I belong here. And they saw it before you. Well, I mean, I think the, the one thing I can do or anyone can do when you're going into a job is they're sort of, what's the worst thing that's gonna happen, right? If I go start working at Twitter and I absolutely hate it, I mean, I can always quit, right? I can quit the next True. day, the next week, the next month, the next year. I mean, employees have a ton of benefits when it comes to working in the United States, yeah. especially in Silicon Valley with the kind of perks and everything you get and the long leash for, for doing something great. So I figured, what's the worst that can happen? I can always quit if I don't like it, but what am I missing by not taking this job? And what I would have been missing and what I kind of was right about my hunch was the amazing connections that I would meet there. I met my business partner for the nonprofit gym, Joel Lunenfeld, who's the head of global brand for Twitter. I met my girlfriend, Kelly, who used to be the chief of staff at Twitter and now works on the media team there. I met, you know, my boss. Dipping Isaac. your pen in the company. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're not married yet, so someday maybe. That's true. But, um, <laughs> 
Yeah. But I've met, you know, a ton of, of coworkers who are just awesome people and friends for life. And I mean, it really was the right decision, especially someone being a transplant to the area to make those connections. And I used to actually work from home when I first moved out here. And I realized I was kind of missing something. Yeah. I, I never actually friends. had friends, the social circle. <laughs> I left life. all my friends and family behind in D.C. and uh -huh. in Pennsylvania where I came from. So it was certainly the right decision for a plethora of reasons. One thing, though, I've, I've got to ask is, is why make a conscious decision to work at the day job first, to work at Twitter first? Is it just the connections and the relationships? I mean, what else is there that influenced your decision? Yeah, it's a definitely a good question and something I've, I've thought about a lot. I, I think the first thing is, obviously, there's work experience there. I'd never done ad sales before. I've never worked in the media world. So learning that whole business, and especially at a time when the media landscape is changing so drastically like it is now, where TV dollars are shifting to digital, digital dollars are shifting specifically into social is a really exciting time and stuff that you can apply to any business. But I think more importantly than just the learning experience is really, if I go out and I work completely for myself, that means all the pressure is on me. I yeah, don't get a paycheck. Tell me about it. <laughs> yeah. You pay your own insurance, you pay your own accountants, you get, you're responsible for your own paycheck. When you want to take a vacation, nobody gives you time off yeah. or paid time off anyway. Take a vacation anytime you want. You're just biz your business is going to suffer as a result. But go ahead. Exactly. And so, you know, with, with Meister and with Lifted View, you know, the other Meister subsidiary, we, uh, have been able to bootstrap these startups the whole way in, in part because we're not having to take money out of the company for me to be paid a salary in order to work on this stuff in my spare right. time. Because you can live on, well, quite well on what you make from Twitter. And, and you gave me a really interesting number. You said when you add up all the perks, bonuses, salary, commission, food, which by the way is really good at Twitter, travel, insurance, et cetera, you got to make around 30 grand a month on your own. And I think this is important because it's lost on a lot of people who are like, I'm going all in, I'm going to quit my job. And you see these articles, uh, man, it's a guy, a picture of a guy in a swimming pool and it's like makes 10 K a month. And it's like, well, yeah, so you're screwed. You're only making 10 K a month. Oh, you forgot about the fact that your job making 8K a month also paid for your insurance. You got a stipend. You had one of those accounts where you can withdraw health money from. If anything happens, you don't have the free lunch and you didn't get a yearly bonus this year. And also the fact that you have this other, you know, there's all kinds of little things that people discount as sort of a right of working in a workplace. They don't even think about it. Like the fact that you have to pay your own cell phone bill. Now suddenly, yeah, cool, you got to go to the swimming pool, you might have more free time, which is great if that's what you're after, but you're not necessarily making more money than you would be. You just have more money in maybe gross, but once you have to pay all of your expenses, it's different. And people go, well, I don't need this, I can cut that out, you know, I can cut this out. Yeah, now you don't have health insurance, sure, you're making more money, but you're not necessarily gonna want that later. And I think that's something that is neglected by a lot of people who are thinking about going all in on the entrepreneur angle is they don't think about everything they get from their workplace, not just the relationships, or not just the perks and the salaries and the insurance, but the relationships and the fact that you're learning differently and possibly more in a high-octane environment like Twitter, it's not like working at Chipotle. No offense to people who work at Chipotle, I just feel like the learning curve tops off after a while. Do you find that having the gig at Twitter, the day job, helps you with your entrepreneurial stuff, or do you feel like it gets in the way? 
Yeah. I mean, I think they both complement each other extremely well. I mean, if you think what sales is, especially something like ad sales, like we do at Twitter, so much of that really is rapport, sure. building trust with your clients. And imagine someone who's in my same position who goes out and meets with a CMO at a company and says, hey, let me tell you all about Twitter. And by the way, all I know is anything about Twitter. I don't know anything outside of there. Or imagine when I go into a room and I say, hey, I can tell you everything about Twitter. But by the way, I'm also advertising on Facebook for my own businesses. I've also experimented with display ads and retargeting and um, you know, feel, know what it's like to be an entrepreneur in your shoes. And maybe most importantly, know what it's like to actually be approached by vendors and what you want. Mm -hmm. And I think this is one of the biggest challenges that salespeople face is they don't understand what it's like to be on the other side of the table. Uh, and I have vendors coming to me every day now saying, how can we work with you? Can you use our software? And I know what it's like to not have the extra time to give to these people. And so I think, okay, I'm getting those pitches every day now. How can I not be like those people that I'm deleting the, their emails right. from their inbox? And how can I actually provide value to the clients? And I think that's a big differentiator. And I think those two really play well off of each other. And I would argue that me doing this stuff on the side actually helps my job and helps Twitter. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to Kajabi dot com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. All right, back to the show. Yeah, I think being multidimensional, especially in a sales role, makes a lot of sense. And you told me something interesting, actually, uh, before, which is that you don't have to be rich or famous for people to like you and wanna hang out, and I feel like that's really apropos here in Silicon Valley where it's easy to compare yourself to the kid who earned a billion dollars yesterday for creating something that you don't even understand, and I think it's right in line with what you're talking about with relationships and being interesting and genuine. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this because I think a lot of people, especially around here, I've noticed, really struggle with this. It's like if you didn't make $20 million last year, you're some kind of loser. Yeah, it's so true. Or if you don't have CEO on your business card, right? Even if your business is selling video games on eBay or right. something, you know, yes. I don't really care as much about that, right? As, as I think uh, most of the listeners probably don't either. So uh, I think it's interesting. I think there's this thing where 
when we look at other people, we think if I could just get to this level, I'd be successful. Mm -hmm. If I could just manage this big company or if I could just get promoted or for something could just happen, I would be happier in my life. And I think that's usually a myth, right? After you get past a certain amount of money in your bank account, I think it's something like 75 or 100 grand a year of, of salary. The marginal return on that money, that salary becomes so low that you can compare someone who earns, I think it's 60 or 75 grand, like you said, is only somebody who earns like $355,000 a year is like, you know, 5% or 1% happier than the guy who earns 60 or 70. And below that, it's like severe. You know, someone who earns 30 has certain struggles and stresses that are constantly there. But then once you hit that threshold, you can make like millions and millions of dollars and it makes no difference. And then there's another peak at something like, I don't even want it, like multi, multi seven or eight figures. But that I feel like is self-selecting because somebody who has that amount of money is probably not just happy because they have that amount of money and virtually no quote unquote worries. They got that way because they're just on a different plane. Yeah, no, it's true. And I think so many studies back that up. And I think, you know, Twitter being a very open company, there's not this um, typical corporate structure where you never see the guys up in the boardroom. I mean, those right. people are on the same floors, booking the same conference rooms, the guy who just made $100 million or $10 million or 30, everybody's treated pretty equally for the mm -hmm. most part. And it's really a great place to work in that sense. And then taking it a step farther, my girlfriend, is, as you know, uh, has worked at Twitter for six years and she's really good friends with almost everybody on the executive team, including Dick, our, our former CEO. And I've gotten to really kind of meet a lot of these people and talk to them, hang out at their vacation homes, things like that. And what you realize is once you make a hundred million dollars, you don't need to go hang out with anybody for money anymore, right? <laughs> yeah. You don't, you don't need losing is over unless you're running for president. Yeah. In fact, you want to hang out with the people who aren't pitching you ideas or talking about business. They, you want to hang out with the per person who's wants to talk about burning man next week or something more fun. Right. And, uh, I think once you realize that, that a, there's no, there's no magic that happens once you hit a certain dollar amount in your bank account or get a certain title on your business card. If you can just be an interesting, fun, caring person, people want to hang out with you just as much as, as those other people. So do you then, since you see the value there and you're in sales, there's value to becoming more interesting versus simply creating more earnings? I mean, I think so. And, and I think, you know, if, if someone took away all the money that, that I've accumulated so far in life today, it doesn't really matter in a way. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not rooting for that to happen necessarily, but I've made so many amazing connections and friends and people that I've done good things for that I feel like I could sleep at a hundred different people's houses tomorrow. They'd say, sure, come sure. stay with me, or I'd love to give you a job. I know you can perform in a, in a job and I'd be glad to give you one. And to me, that's kind of like the backstop, right? It's not buying gold or it's not loading up your, your, <laughs> yeah. your computer with Bitcoin or whatever it is. It's actually, you know, are you building those relationships with people who trust you and you build a genuine rapport with who would give you that second chance or, you know, want to invite you to their house or their dinner party or give you a job the next time? So a lot of what being rich or well, having wealth means to you is having those relationships and being of value of interest to these people outside of the financial means that you're talking about. And I think that's really interesting because it's very hard. You could be the most interesting person that you know, but you'll still compare yourself to other people who have more money than you if that's the metric you're using. And then once you make $100 million, then you're just trying to get stuff that other people with 100 or $200 million don't have and can't buy. It's kind of back to the fisherman story, right? Uh -huh. If you really love reading books or you really love backpacking around the world, do you have to go get that $100 million and you know start the company and sell it and go through all those years of, of agony to get there possibly? Or can you just go do that now? I mean, yeah, you gotta be 
ready to sacrifice for your business, but you can't sacrifice for your whole life for the eventual retirement, like you said, yeah? I mean, I, I love the constant retirement thing. A lot of what we do at Art of Charm doesn't feel like work, although I, I won't lie, a lot of it certainly does. <laughs> um, and I know Jason agrees with me there. But you've got some pretty interesting mindsets when it comes to protecting your time, and some of it really made me laugh. So I, I would love to hear, you said stop doing stuff you don't wanna do, and it's easier said than done, but you have some pretty comical family stories and things like conversations that you've had with your girlfriend as well. I won't make you go into too many details, but how do you stop doing stuff you don't wanna do? That's one of those things where it's like, you know, it's like a cliche that nobody can follow. Like, just be confident. Yeah, stop doing stuff you don't wanna do. Well, okay, sign me up for that. Yeah. Right? I heard a great quote the other day. It was every time that you're saying yes to something that you don't really want to do, you're saying no to something that you really want to do. And I don't know, that could even been at your podcast or another podcast that I listened to. Who knows? <laughs> but I thought it was, I'm happy to take credit for that. <laughs> I thought it was a fantastic quote and it's so true um, because it's so easy to say yes and we're taught and trained to say yes to everything. But really all the most successful people, the most successful investors, the people who can balance their time are only able to do it because they say no to everything. And um, my best friend and, and former uh, roommate for, uh, and friend from college, Tony, who works at Google, um, we, we like to joke that he's a time tyrant. And <laughs> we call him a time tyrant because he's literally to the point where you know, he would tell his girlfriend, you get one night a week, or I'm sorry, one night a month that I'll go hang out with your family or your friends, whatever you Jeez, pick it. man. The other nights, I'm doing my own thing. It's like and, Sheldon Cooper. Yeah. And I don't take it to that level of extreme, but it kind of showed me like, wow, like there really is an extreme level that you can you can take it to. But ironically, Tony is probably the happiest person that I know in the world because you know what? He does what he wants to do 29 out of the 30 nights a month at least. Yeah. And I think that's really I think that's really impressive. And we kind of a lot of people may say that's socially awkward. Or, <laughs> so, so is. I can't get over the fact that his girlfriend is like, okay, we'll only see my family. I mean, it's not that she can't see her family. He just doesn't go along. Well, she moved to Colorado recently, so maybe she... <laughs> oh, got it. <laughs> okay, so maybe don't take all the pages out of Tony's book. <laughs> no, but uh, I mean, <laughs> it just it just made me think, and I, you know, I told you the story before, how sometimes I, I joke with my girlfriend about this because we have so many people asking us, go to dinner, go to lunch, come to my kid's birthday party, you know, go on a trip with us that I've, I've told her, hey, I have a great family back east. I moved 3,000 miles to hang out with the most interesting people I could to pursue the passions that I wanted to do, to be outside in the amazing California mm -hmm. weather. I don't want to be stuck doing yes obligations all the time. Right. I want to be doing those exciting things. And I get it. You know, we have Christmas, we have Thanksgiving, we have some other thing that, you know, makes sense to be with friends or family or whatever during that time. But sometimes we just need to be alone. Yeah. Or sometimes we need to go out and just do something interesting, exciting for the first time that we just can't do if our calendars are filled with things that we don't really want to do. So basically, you've got a system of no's. Yeah. And I would love to hear how you got, did you find that easier or did you have to work on it like a skill set? You know, I think at first, like most things in life, I probably started it with a little bit of humor and joking, like telling people, especially like people that I work around, let's say that, you know, it's very common, as you know, in some sort of a work environment for people to say like, hey, let me put an hour in your calendar to get coffee. Right. And so I started saying, hey, look, I actually do the best in the morning. I find that I'm extremely productive from 8 a.m. to noon or 1 p.m. And I don't want to take meetings during that time right. that aren't critically important. Mm -hmm. because I want to use that time for all the jobs that are the hardest to get through. Then at three or four in the afternoon, when I've already got all the hard stuff out of the way, that's when we should have a, a meeting. And by the way, right. maybe that hour meeting, could we do it in 15 or 20 minutes? Yeah. Like, people have this weird 
propensity for just throwing hours, rounded numbers on calendars. And I just, I'm kind of like, hey, even when I'm talking to a client, I say, can we have a meeting for 12 minutes? Yeah. When you tell somebody you want a meeting for 12 minutes or 14 minutes or 23 minutes, they're like, whoa. It's like, first of all, it catches them off guard. Right. And they're like, this person clearly either is busy themselves or respects my time, both of which are beneficial. And they already know the, what's going to happen during that meeting so well that they know it's not 15-ish minutes, it's 11 minutes. Yeah, 11 yeah. minutes. And, you know, sometimes if there's a meeting that's an hour long and someone else is scheduled, I'll email them before the meeting or at the beginning of the meeting, I'll say, look, I reviewed the agenda for this meeting or I made the agenda for this meeting. I think here's the parts that we need to really cover today. And I think we can do it in X amount of time. Mm. And then I show them that I'm not just an asshole. I'm not just saying, hey, right. I don't have enough time for you. I'm actually doing us both a favor and I'm going to consolidate this down into a format that makes sense for both of us and give you 13 minutes or 15 minutes or an hour of your time back. Yeah, I, I like that a lot because meetings, I can't remember who said this, but it's like, don't do in a meeting what you can do in a phone call. Don't do in a phone call what you can do in an email. And I didn't ever get this before. Tim Ferriss told me about this a really long time ago. He's like, I hate when people ask me to jump on the phone. And I thought, oh, what a, what a prick, you know, can't jump on the phone. And now when people ask me to jump on the phone, and this is for the past several years I've realized this, but now I'm like, that's exactly, I always think of him telling me, don't jump on the phone when people ask you to, because I just thought it was so arrogant. Like, oh, you don't have time to jump on the phone. I won't do it because I'm gonna schedule time and then play phone tag and then be in a quiet place so you can pitch me on something I'm not interested in, I don't even know what it is, send me an email. You know, assistant will go through and, and review it and it's not just like, I'm so important. It's like, you have to protect your time. We can't do shows like this for you, for the masses, if we're taking phone calls with people that wanna pitch us deals or have a harebrained scheme to like get free advertising off the art of charm and make it look like a mutually beneficial proposition. You know, like there's there's so much of that. And if you don't want people to call you, take your take your phone number out of your signature yeah. and give your cell phone to your most important clients and the people that you want to do business with or you want to uh, call you and say, hey, I prefer text. We kind of open ourselves up so much to getting those phone calls that should be two minutes that drag yeah. into an hour. So there's some things I think we all can do to minimize those calls. We have a phone number in our email, in my email signature, and they're really surprised when Jen answers it. They're like, can I talk to Jordan? And she's like, no. <laughs> Maybe, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Probably, and she'll look at my calendar and go, not right now, who is this? And unless it's somebody who lost my phone number that should certainly have my other phone number, it's not happening. And I'm trying not to sound like an arrogant, like uber important guy, but I'm trying to teach, uh, we're trying to teach you how to manage your time. It, don't wait until you're at the level at which you cannot scale this. Set up these systems early. And I'm not saying your buddy wants to hang out on Friday, have him call your assistant. I don't do that either. Friends can call me 24-7. It just might take a day or two for me to call them back. But the problem is you have all of these business connections who want you to treat them like A-plus leads or A-plus clients when they're not actually clients. And just because, and you said this yourself, Ben, just because someone is your client doesn't mean that you need to compromise time, integrity, et cetera, for them. And I think a lot of people, when they're jumping off into a new business or even at work, they'll think, I have to do this meeting. I have to take this phone call. You told me a funny story about a meeting at Twitter where you were just like, why don't you tell me? I think that there's this weird feeling of obligation in general when it comes to meetings and when it comes to email. And I just think like a meeting 
should be beneficial to you if you're going to spend your time going there. And there's a lot of meetings that people just kind of get thrown on invites for. And if you're not going to pay attention to that meeting, you're going to go type on your computer or that hour will be spent mm. responding to a client or building out a proposal or doing something else more productive. You shouldn't be going to that meeting just to check a box. And that's one thing Twitter's great about is at the end of the day, Twitter wants results, right? Like right. most great companies would. And yeah, um, right. you don't go to your performance review and they're like, man, you made it to every single meeting that we had scheduled for you, congratulations. They're like, why didn't you sell any ads? And you go, because you guys schedule all these dumb meetings that don't have any benefit. Or how about, e I mean, the same thing with email, right? I mean, have you ever seen someone get fired for not responding to email fast enough? Uh, no, I mean, that's a good point. In fact, I think it's the opposite. Yeah. Sometimes when people respond to every one of my emails within five seconds, I'm just like, do you do nothing else besides sit there and stare at your email box yeah. every day? I, I don't have like a system that I play. I don't like schedule the emails to come back or respond to them right away. And I have, totally do that. <laughs> I have, yeah, I have Boomerang and it's great because you can make sure people respond or if I do respond right away, I can say, send this in two days so they don't think they can just keep pinging this back to me and turning it into an instant messenger. That's a Tim Ferriss trick, right? Is it? I don't know. I thought I thought of it. Well, I guess I'm not. <laughs> I guess I'm not all up on all the latest tricks. Yeah, I think he talks about that because you don't want people to think it's now like an ongoing, immediate dialogue, exactly. like a chat. So yeah. by scheduling it, you sort of uh, alleviate that. But um, you know, with email, I mean, God, uh, email is not an obligation, right? Mm. If, I mean, of course, if your number one client emails you and says, "Hey." This I need to talk broken. to you. This is important yeah. or broken. You should probably, you know, email them back right away or call them or text them or whatever. But, you know, when people email you or they're soliciting you something, you do not need to respond to their email. I mean, it's just not necessary. And I love the thing that you've you've done. I think it's with was it Ramit with the no reply needed. Yeah, no reply needed. NRN at the end of the email. Now back to the show. Like you can say, thanks, this really means a lot. I really appreciate it. I'll see you at the barbecue at Jim's house on Friday, NRN. Or I'm sending you this article because I think it will be really interesting, blah, 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 explanation of how it fits in, love your show or whatever, NRN, because then the person doesn't feel like they have to reply and say, thanks, I read this and it was really thought, whatever, it's just don't reply. Yeah, and, and then do you respond to that email again and say, thanks for replying to me? It's Yeah, it can become a weird never-ending chain. I, and sometimes if it says NRN, I'll still reply if I have a question. But if I'm just going to say, thanks, I don't reply because it's just a waste of time and bandwidth for that person. Yeah, and Matt Mullenweg at WordPress, he's talked about this on podcasts. And obviously, there's companies like Slack and HipChat and these folks that are changing how this works. But someday, probably in the not-too-distant future, we're going to look back or tell our kids, like, this is how email, this is how business used to get done through this thing called email and it's going to be a complete joke right, right. no one's going to be like you. telegrams or telefax or telex or whatever that thing was and it's like why would you open up a single message and and then have to address it to that same person why don't you have channels for each person yeah. you know and if you do write emails don't write people dissertations right you know you're not having them ask them to read your your master's thesis you're asking them to hopefully perform an action or make an introduction or do whatever you need so you don't have to you know, fake things and make them grammatically incorrect and stuff just to make yourself look busy, but you can write one sentence and forget the period, it's okay. No, I'm definitely on board with that. I, I think you mentioned providing value at every turn to make communication more effective. What is some of the advice that you have for people on that? I, I love the idea of not reaching out. Let's meet for coffee for an hour. I think you'll find me interesting, right? You're providing value. You're, you're making it clear what the value proposition is. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think at the core, almost everyone is the same, right? They're already too busy and they don't want to add work to their plate. They don't want to research a bunch of things and they want to do stuff that motivates them. And so if you can give people something that's sort of turnkey and ready to go, I think to me, that's a lot of what providing value is. So if I'm reaching out to a journalist, let's say on behalf of, of Meister, I'm not going to say, hey, like Meister is blowing up and it's doing amazing things and you should write, you about, should write us. about us. Yeah. Right. I'm going to say, here's your story. Here's your angle. Here's why Meister is blowing up. Like, here's why you want to write about this. And here's my cell phone number if you want to text me. Please don't call. It's 2015. No. Yeah. <laughs> but but yeah. Uh, do not leave me a voicemail. I will. I will hunt you down. But if you do that, and now you put yourself in that journalist's shoes, they're a lot more likely to say, "Wow, I see the whole picture here. My work's already done. Mm -hmm. I would love to to make this happen. And now I'll, I will have coffee with you, or I will do a Skype chat with you, or whatever to talk about if we're going to work on this story together. You know, the same thing in the Twitter world, right? When you're working with a media buyer, you know, what do they really care about? Are they motivated by the fact that this media buy is going to move the needle best for their company? Or are they motivated by getting a promotion? Are they motivated by looking good in their boss's eyes? Right. Or did they want you to buy them dinner that night because they just wanted a friend to talk to? And yeah. so if you can figure out what's actually motivating people and then make their job easier, it's a heck of a lot easier to make sales and make connections and, and win people's hearts over. And you've got a rule, never reach out to somebody and ask for their time without making it very clear why. And I think that we sort of touched on that before, but I wanna kind of restate that because I think that's brilliant and it's one of the most common mistakes that I see. And do you take the principle of adding value at every turn to every single email? I mean, you kind of touched on the NRN thing, but how do you circle back with leads and clients and things like that without doing the mundane, which is like, just checking in, seeing how you're doing. I mean, how do you move things along and make that valuable for them? Yeah, I mean, I think that can be a, a little bit trickier sometimes. I think once you've developed such a deep rapport with someone and you've worked with them for years, like I have with some of my biggest clients, I mean, you certainly kind of get a little bit of grace where maybe you know, once in a while you you do kind of make it a, a little less important than other times, but that's only after you've built a long rapport with someone, right? Like, I think, you know, we're almost to the point now probably where I could text you just something funny or I could, you know, waste your time for five seconds without you being like, God, this guy's a total waste of my time. But I couldn't start there. Right. I couldn't mm -hmm. couldn't make that. I couldn't make that my intro pitch to you or whatever. Right. Kind of goes back to the 30 minutes just for coffee to get to know each other type thing. So, um you know, I think there's almost always something that you can provide someone of value, though. It's mm -hmm. almost hard for me at this point to not find that out, especially, you know, when it's the Twitter stuff. It's, you know, that we have a new product coming out that's interesting or we have, um, you know, a new beta that's available or we have, you know, some uh, conference coming up that we'd like for them to attend. I mean, there's almost always something and then you can have the, oh, by the way, did you make the decision on XYZ yet mm -hmm. as sort of a subtopic to the email rather than it just be, hey, I know I asked you a week ago, but do you have the decision yet on if you're going to move forward with that campaign? You know, you mentioned that you're not that good of a salesperson, but yet you're one of the top salespeople at Twitter. Is this false modesty? Is this you comparing yourself to the top sales guys, or are you doing something different than what you consider sales? Well, I don't know. I guess it's a it's probably a little bit of, of all of those things. I mean, I think in the world is changing, right? When it comes to sales, people don't necessarily want to be sold to. Persuaded, like, right? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think they, they're willing to be persuaded, but 
people are much more interested in data nowadays than they ever were, and they can find a lot of the information out on their own, whereas salespeople at one point like held all the power, right? right? Their job was just to show you the numbers and present them to you in a cool PowerPoint flip chart or pie graph, and you go, wow, look at this weird squiggly line graph of our competitor using this service and increasing. I already have those analytics, man. Yep. I got a whole department whose job it is to get those analytics so that we don't need to get them from you. Exactly. Or like, you know, with Twitter being such a big company and being open, people come to me all the time and say, oh, I saw the new blog post that just went up on the website about this product. Can you mm -hmm. tell me about it? Or this new advertising tool. And I'm like, God, I didn't even know about that yet, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's it's kind of shifted, right? Where I think the psychology behind it and the time management and making the most of those opportunities when you are in front of a client because they're dealing with 50 different vendors. So you know, when you get in front of them and you have that hour to do your presentation in person or whatever, it becomes much more critical and the follow-up becomes more critical in how you do it than just, again, where you, know, you held all the power at one point and they had to call you every time they had a question or whatever. You, you know, the balance has shifted there. So now it's more about relationships instead of short-term close, presentation, sales call. Exactly. And that's specific you know, to certain businesses, right? There's still some businesses like maybe more in the software sales realm and everything where certainly like the closing is, is way more important. But in the job that I do, it's much more relationship-based. I could probably sell almost all of my clients a one-time campaign or get them involved in a new beta because they trust me at this point. But I'm not willing to put them in things that are going to damage the long-term uh, relationship that we have because that's how you know we do business is building, building things for the long-term. So before we wrap, I want to get to some of the ways that you generate ideas, because you're, you're really good at that. And we have some of these techniques we have in common, I thought they're really interesting. So I'll let you sort of bring these up, because uh, I think a lot of people are consistently looking for ways to become more creative and shake off some of the, the funk of the office. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think we're, a lot of us really kind of view if we're working or not by how much we're sitting in front of our computer nowadays. And I would challenge most people to think of when the last great idea they had while they were staring at their phone or staring at their computer. And I know for me personally, almost all of the innovative and interesting ideas I have come when I'm going for walks or I actually ride my motorcycle both ways to and from work across the Bay Bridge every day. So there's a half hour each way where my time is completely uninterrupted by screens. And almost all of my ideas come from those places or they come when I'm exercising and doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu because the blood is flowing, I'm moving around, and I'm not tied to answering emails or staring at a screen. So I'm actually shocked that companies don't put more of an emphasis on this of like, hey, like, we don't need to take the afternoon off, but like, right. let's go for a walk for 15 minutes around the neighborhood, you know, with someone or by yourself and just think, take a notebook with you, write down your ideas. And when I do that, it's been extremely beneficial. Well, I noticed that a lot of offices, less so in Silicon Valley and San Francisco, but more so just regular corporate offices, especially in places like New York, they're like prisons without a yard. Yeah. Which is not a good look. No. You know, another thing I do, and, you know, I'm not sure, you know, how much everybody will agree with me on this, but I am not a pothead, right? I don't smoke weed 24 hours, seven days a week. I don't smoke weed before I go to work, but I do use cannabis recreationally. And the way that I use it is, you know, when I go home, instead of having a glass of wine or before I exercise, I may use it. And that really helps spark a different part of my brain and helps with creativity. And the same thing, I have a notebook with me. So instead of turning this thing into like this lazy loser pothead stigma type thing, I turn it into a, a productive session where it's something I'm actually getting value out of. And from hanging out with all these people now in Silicon Valley that are famous, you know, 
um, entrepreneurs or CEOs or venture capitalists, if you think that marijuana is still in that stigma, you're definitely wrong because I would say a healthy percentage of people, especially around here, are on to using that for productive purposes. And it's no longer has that stigma where you can't do it. Interesting. Well, thank you very much. And of course, we'll have your, your well, we'll have your Twitter linked in the show notes as well. Uh, Guardian Jim, Meister, and Lifted View will all be linked in the show notes as well. Uh, the high-end cannabis stuff and the supplements that you guys are offering as well uh, will be linked in the notes as well as the gym. So thanks so much, man, for your time. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you want to make sure you convey to the audience? No, I, I think I would just say, you know, pursue your passions, figure out what re what really makes you happy. Stop worrying about, you know, what your business card says or what your parents think and think, how can you get more time back in your life? And maybe that's working at a corporate job. Maybe that's pursuing entrepreneurial stuff, or maybe it's both. And there's no right way or wrong way to find your happiness. Awesome. Thanks so much, man. Thank you. Interesting show. I mean, he, Ben does a lot, and yet he still seems to have time for his friends, his family, and to do a lot of things that he does enjoy. So I would definitely take heed some of this. You know, I love the idea of going for walks to help solve problems, riding your bike, things like that. I do that a lot to help solve big problems or just when I need a break and I feel like I've got the, uh, the talk show equivalent of writer's block. Also, stop doing things you don't want to do, turning even family obligations into things that either you enjoy or just not doing them at all. And I realize that for some of us, we're more flexible on this than others. I'd love to hear your feedback on this. And of course, I'd love to hear feedback on everything that we do here at The Art of Charm, because this is a fanarchy, which means the show is run by you. So if you know someone is a good fit, let me know, jordan at theartofcharm.com. And if you enjoyed this, don't forget to thank Ben on Twitter. He's definitely on Twitter since he works there. And surprisingly, not mandatory, but he's on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well as all the other resources mentioned on the show. I'm on Twitter. I'm the Jordan Harbinger that has the blue check mark. The other ones are all fake, uh, and I post a lot of things, insights, funny stuff, whatever, on Twitter. I'm at The Art of Charm on Twitter. Bootcamp details at bootcamp.theartofcharm.com. Remember, bootcamp.theartofcharm.com. There's two dots in there. We're sold out a few months in advance, so if you're thinking about it now, get in touch ASAP. Let's plan ahead. And on the website, we've got our blog with our articles and other ways to engage with the AOC team on these topics. Subscribe on iTunes, write us a review. We'll love you forever. Special thanks to the Jasons for their help in production of the Art of Charm podcast. Go ahead and tell your friends because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. Now have a great week and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and everything for the extraordinary man at theartofcharmpodcast.com. 